pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. So I have the great honor to talk to Elin Rombo today, who is an appointed opera singer to the Royal Court in Sweden. I understand that there is a quality assurance in, in the whole process, but I must ask you something. How do you become appointed to the Royal Court? Is it like the king or queen saw you and said in Swedish, or do you apply? How did you become a royal singer? I'm sorry. You cannot apply for that title. It's the king himself. I guess he is surrounded by advisors, but he decides actually which singers. It's not every year. It's not even every second year. It's like when he thinks somebody should have the title court singer that he decides to to give it to one or two singers. So you become a court singer. Did you do anything special at that time or is it like a long experience and finally you get to be a court singer? Well, it turned out that the king and queen uh, heard me at several concerts and operas and they liked me. So they asked me to sing at their celebrating of him 40 years at the throne. I traveled with them twice visiting other courts in Europe. That means that they bring something from Sweden uh, and they offer a concert for the other courthouse, other royalties. Mm. And I was the singer twice with them. And I think after that, they sort of felt that they knew me a little bit and, and liked, I guess, mm. how I sing. And then the Marshal of the Realm is the title of the, the man who called me. And he's sort of the boss of the royal, of the court, just underneath the king. He called and asked whether the king was allowed to give me the title of a court singer. And I said, yes, he's allowed. <laughs> that was a very nice way of putting it, really. <laughs> <laughs> very modest, I would say. So you're a singer and for people who don't know different types of singers in opera or classical music, what are there and what type are yeah. you? I'm a soprano. Um, I'm a high soprano singing coloratura, which means I can move my voice very quickly, singing uh, kind of difficult, extreme high stuff is my unique selling point, I would say. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think I would be classified as a lyric coloratura soprano. And when there are opera houses that have some kind of opera they will perform, do they beforehand know that a, a certain 
role, so to speak? Is that soprano because it fits the whole thing, or or do they just call along a list and see who's available? Most opera roles are written for a certain type of voice. So, for example, if you're doing a, a Wagner opera, you wouldn't call me because my voice doesn't fit in the Wagner music. It's for the dramatic sopranos. But if you're doing a Donizetti opera, like a light Italian opera, you wouldn't call the singers on the Wagner list. The music is written specifically for specific voices. But these days, most singers sing a wider range of music than you would in the older times. Like before, you would only maybe sing something by Verdi, the Italian composer. Now, these days, I can also sing Verdi and I can sing contemporary music and I can sing Baroque music. We are kind of versatile these days, most singers. You don't have to dwell into details on this one, but have you ever gotten a role where you think, ah, this wasn't really for me, or that you kind of changed your mind, but you couldn't really say no, like all we others when we take jobs that we really didn't want? I must say, yes. I'm not going to say which one. That, that's why I said, <laughs> which one? said so. Right. Mm. No, it's, yeah, definitely. A few times, actually. Usually it's because I haven't sung enough uh, or haven't even gotten the music before. If it's a contemporary piece, for example, maybe the music isn't even there when they ask. They ask like years ahead, would you want to do this at this place? And you say, well, yes, that sounds interesting. And then you get the music in your hand and you realize the music doesn't fit you, your voice. That has happened a few times. And usually it's because it's so low. Composers write too low. I mean, they don't write too low, but it's too low for me to sing. So sometimes it's like that, oh. unfortunately. <laughs> Not quite on the royal level of singing, but we had a show for the education for the doctors. And I, I got a song and it was way too low and I didn't know what to do. And just the day before we were performing, I got this really bad laryngitis. So my voice kind of lowered an octave or something. And suddenly people thought that, oh, you have a very broad range. You couldn't really depend on laryngitis <laughs> to get better. So being a physician, I'm wondering, do you have any special tricks for your voice, either medical or some superstitious things, things that you shouldn't be doing? I see what you, yeah, you mean. I think I have less of uh, superstitiousness and uh, different tricks that I do than than most singers, I would say. I'm very much a a, like a, a voice technique nerd, in a sense. I like to depend on the technique I've learned. I think a lot of people, they eat pineapple, they need to go for a walk, they need to listen to certain music, whatever, the same day of the performance. I don't have stuff like that. What is good to think about, I think, is like, not to be boring, but like every day is preparation for that performance. So 
one should always try to keep one's voice in shape every day. It's like try to speak properly, try to not wear it down by screaming or shouting at a party or like, I don't know. It's like that everyday treatment is important. You cannot stay away from diseases, from colds, especially if we have kids, it's like impossible. If you have a, a really important performance, do you kind of isolate before that because you don't want to get sick or, or do you just live a normal life? Yeah, I, I personally live a normal life. I need to sleep a lot before a big performance. That's the most important thing. So if I work in Stockholm, I try to sleep in another room, maybe in the house to get my hours of sleep. But usually I'm away working. so. In a hotel room, I sleep as much as I want and nobody's gonna knock on my door. How often or how long do you practice? How much do you need? How does a work day look if you're not performing? There is always something to work on, like a project to work with. So a working day could be that I first sit down with just quietly, not even opening my mouth, translating if it's in a foreign language, um, trying to read up. Maybe it's a story about something that is connected to a book. That kind of whole work is also involved, like knowing your role, trying to figure out what it all means. Sometimes I work to memorize the text and then I listen to recordings if there are any, or I sit by the piano. But also another part of a working day would be warming up technique and trying to fit things together. I do also by the piano, but I usually record myself with my phone to sort of listen, to hear what I did. So my working days are very flexible. Some days I don't work <laughs> because I do other things, but that is also if I have free days and I know I'm going to work for uh, maybe three weeks straight with concerts and preparation, then it's nice to have free days also. So my weekends come in clusters. Do you have anything coming up now in the future? Yeah, I'm recording uh, a Mozart concert aria with Sony Records mm -hmm. with the Swedish Chamber Orchestra in, in Örebro mm -hmm. in Sweden. First, we have two concerts in a week on Thursday and Friday. Uh, and then the Monday after we are recording it. It's a session. That's the closest one uh, coming up. And then I'm going to the Stockholm Opera to start rehearsing Candide. Uh, which is an, an opera by Bernstein. One of my favorites, probably because I once was in a, a choir, is the Brahms German Requiem, or Eindorch's Requiem. I happened to see that you actually performed that in Chicago. Just a personal question. What do you think about the German Requiem? I think it's my favorite Requiem as well. So I agree totally with you there. It's quite amazing. The soprano has one aria, like is, is in one of the movements, but it's the most heavenly music ever written, I think. Mm. It's amazing. 
now all you listeners you must listen to it because it go it's very this brown's requiem is very violent from in some movements but then the soprano movement is just pure beauty and and very soothing I love it and I love singing it. I sang it a lot, but of course it was a high point singing it with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Riccardo Muti, who is perhaps one of the greatest conductors. Yeah. I have a funny story about that, actually. Should oh, I tell you that? Yeah, sure. I hadn't sang the Brahms Requiem before. I sang it with Riccardo Muti and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And the way I got that job was that I was in Salzburg, in the Salzburg uh, Festspiele, which is a opera festival during the summer. And uh, Ricardo Mut, everyone's there. It's like a big, big thing. He was looking for a soprano to sing the Brahms Requiem solo when he was installed as the new conductor uh, in Chicago. And I was around in Salzburg as well. My agent called somebody at the festival saying yeah i have a soprano Elin rombo she has sang this just recently and many times <laughs> so she can audition for ricardo moti and i think that my agent had confused me with somebody else like she just got it all wrong so i i was like you know i haven't sang it you you know i don't know it she's like oh that's too bad you're having the audition tomorrow at one o'clock so I, I just make it until you make it. Exactly. I grabbed a pianist. He he was my friend. I was like, you've got to help me now. And like, he saw how desperate I was. We went into a, a room, and just learned it together. I was like, I'm not going to leave here until it's good enough to sing for Ricardo Morte tomorrow at one. So we were there for a couple of hours, and I went home. I mean, it's not that super difficult to learn, but it was a big deal. I listened to like five million recordings of other singers singing it, of him conducting it. And then I met him the day after. And he was just like a stone face standing by the piano. Like I thought he he hates me already. <laughs> but the piano, I started singing and then he sort of softened after a while. He started waving his hand, like starting conducting. The piano was playing, I was singing, and they just said nothing else but see you in Chicago. Oh, <laughs> what a wonderful story. I think I had to go to bed after that. I was like, <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> So is there any difference in performing with different orchestras? Are, are some easier to work with than others? Yes, I would say it has a lot to do with the conductor, I would say, and also who's the concert master, like the first violin sitting. If that person is very alert and used to working with singers, it's definitely easier than others. So it's different. Orchestras have different personalities, all of them. So. Yeah, it's very different. So you have to adapt yourself a little bit for the performances. Yeah, at some orchestras you have to turn around all the time to the conductor saying, I feel like I'm drowning, I can't hear myself, can you hear me? It's a volume problem usually, whereas some orchestras you can just fly, like they, they lift you. Mm. I don't know what the trick is there. Very interesting. How come you 
became a singer? Was that a childhood dream? Yes. I knew from the beginning that I wanted to be on a stage somehow. I didn't know anything about classical music or opera singing, but I uh, wanted to perform in front of an audience. And then one thing sort of led to another. I was learning instruments myself, but I also went to the public music school for, for kids, playing the clarinet, singing in choirs, taking voice lessons actually later on. And then I ended up in a music high school. I heard friends went there and I was like, I want to go there too. Uh, it wasn't in my hometown, Katrina Holm, where I'm from. Uh, and I had to travel every day to Norrköping, which was where they had a music high school. And there I was connected and got in contact with opera singing. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever heard, I think. I just, that was it. That was the start of it. That was the start. So it seems to be uh, quite important that you get some kind of musical schooling, at, at least in childhood, j just to get a glimpse of that world or being able to choose that in, in the future. Wouldn't you say so? Yes, the music schools are so important to encourage all those children who feel the need to sing and play. And I mean, not everyone wants to do that in public, but it's a very good way to get to know your emotions and feelings and you get to express a lot just not talking but actually playing or singing it's it's an amazing tool for life to know how to play an instrument another dimension in life i guess definitely Talking about dimensions in life, I happen to know that you actually have persistent pain in your life. Since this is outsmart the pain, <laughs> uh, you seem to have outsmarted it already. But please tell me, uh, pain in your life. It all began actually when I was in high school. I had pain in my leg and uh, to make a long story short, it was a tumor, a benign tumor that they tried to remove four times and a fifth time they had to take out the, the metal <laughs> that was in my leg. So I've had five operations basically on my thigh. I don't have a tumor anymore. The leg is healed. Everything is fine, but the pain is still there and has been since I was 15. This is so important because you say something that uh, I tried to say in the book that I've written that there could be a pain, although nothing is seen. And in your case, I guess everyone said it was cured because yeah. it was, mm. but you still had the pain. Yeah. Uh, and what happened? Every other few years I've been going for x-rays. Something is still wrong. It's still bothering me. They cannot find anything physical. Well, it's all fine. I've been going to physiotherapists uh, acupunctures, different kinds of uh, chiropractors. That works that day, basically. That takes the pain away that very day I'm at the, in the treatment and then it comes back. So that's basically what's going on with me. I never spoke to anybody about my pain. I just 
sort of fix it as I go suggesting different shoes maybe for a stage like mm, I don't like the high heeled ones maybe I should wear those or I don't want to sit like this or I cannot lift this or just cheating <laughs> cheating my way <laughs> how did the pain affect you the first operation was when I was 15 and now I'm 45 so for these 30 years I've been dealing with this in one way or another how has it affected you physically the pain from 15 years and onward it has shaped my everyday life I'm not a sporty person I could never run or join a gym or anything like that I've been trying because I've I know it's nice and it would be would be good for one's body and getting older it's even <laughs> more important but that the pain takes over so of course it's been very depressing many many times i get sad and angry and frustrated the one thing that i just won't let it effect is my work because I love singing and I love working. I've been singing with pain everywhere in my body. Thank God it hasn't affected my voice. It takes a big space in my life, obviously. So you're you're t actually touching that subject that it does not only have the physical implication, but also mental and, and things that come with the pain. So you say it takes a, a big part of your life that you really don't want it to take, of course. Are there other things I usually say it can affect concentration and memory and mood and things like that? What is your experience? I think mostly the mood, I would say. I forget things, but I'm not sure it's because of the pain. Not being able to remember names and faces and... Mm. I'm bad at that. Maybe it has to do with the pain. I don't know. I just accepted that's how I am. <laughs> After 30 years, you did come to a pain clinic where they could look on your pain. Before we go into that, didn't anyone talk about chronic or persistent pain with you from like your 15 years and 30 years onward? Listen to this. No, I haven't heard. I never heard about this diagnose what persistent pain i never what no never i never heard about it okay it was pure luck i will tell the story i was just going to my pianist that i work with now and then and he happens to live together <laughs> with the author that you are writing this book with uh, and by chance she was at home I was there for a totally different reason and she just happened to say, oh, may I listen to you practicing? And I said, yes. And I said, I, you know, I recognize you, right? Because I, she's a, she's a journalist and, and author. So I, I said, I'm curious, what are you writing right now? And then she told me about this book and about you, Karsten. So that's my first ever knowing that there is a pain clinic, there is persistent pain, there are things you can do. It's not normal to have 30 years of pain with nothing wrong in your leg. That's shocking to me. <laughs> I will talk more on pharmacology and what you do with persistent pain in a later episode. 
so you don't need to talk about uh, your personal case so to speak but if we fast forward you met someone at the pain clinic and you got an explanation and uh, you tried some treatments as i understand you are in the tryout or beginning of the treatment right now so you're not finished but so far has anything happened if you tried treatments i've started taking painkillers and uh, some muscle relaxing pills which help me take the edge of the the worst pain this has helped me with the mood not being so frustrated and devastated and sad about my situation i know there is something to do as we speak now i also have pain in my back but i can handle it in a different way i can still talk to you and, and laugh i would say the mind and the the mood is the biggest change so far some people only think about their pain intensity but if we had some kind of scale where you would say how much your life has improved how, how would you rate it i tried out a few different uh, medications and the ones that i ended up with they changed my life like 100 percent because i didn't have this constant everyday worrying nagging pain in in my body and and i know uh, your book so many <laughs> patients witness this that it moves around it's like in your fingers in your knee in your neck it moves around like crazy that has stopped i don't know how to explain it but normally i would have gone to a chiropractor i would have gotten help from somebody who's massaging or whatever i would have done something but now i can actually treat myself listen to this normally i would have gotten help from somebody but now i can actually treat myself this nagging monotone pain is gone i would say it's a hundred percent better well that's wonderful to hear and just a parenthesis you are not taking any dependency medications no opioids nothing like that just no. so the listener will understand that you're not being drugged by some strange <laughs> doctor for this episode or something it's really like normal medication but no one actually tried it because no one knew what you had although treatment can be good you actually took control of this yourself you don't need to depend on someone else to go to like you said you do not go to a chiropractor right now which you would have done but now it's your time isn't it i must say that sounds great so you're on a journey and on the other hand you have pain but you can have this episode together with me and you know that it will pass eventually and you're on a steady path but it has some uh, slopes in it too yeah it does but i have a feeling of having control over it which i didn't before it's just mm. pure fear like my back is gonna break or something mm. but it isn't anymore it's not so acute anymore has your surrounding seen any improvement or is it just you that feel that it's better well my husband was like how can you be so happy <laughs> because he knows also how, how bad it is 
I guess that's the biggest reaction. He, he sees me every day. I don't think the kids have noticed that I am in pain. That's probably because you hid it so well before, I guess. Yeah, it could be. I'm a good mm. actress as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> you are not taking any medication that makes your mood a lot better. So that's not why you're happy either. I need to say this to the audience so they don't think that you're like a chemical treated person. It, it's actually the knowledge that made you better. Isn't it? Really, definitely. Yeah. Maybe we'll have a, a follow-up episode sometime and, and we'll see what the end result became, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say that someone is listening right now and they also have had pain for a long time, didn't know anything about persistent pain. What would your suggestion be to that person? What, what should they do? Well, if they know that nothing is wrong, like that just do things like i know it hurts i know i'm like walking around like a ghost sometimes here because i can't move my back properly like i'm dragging my feet but then i took a walk just down the street i could straighten up like you have to fight and own the feeling sort of own the the pain and don't let it um get to you sort of i try to do some small exercises and then I cry because it hurts so much, but just do them. Get in the habit of, of not laying down on the bed or not laying down on the sofa. A little bit you have to because it, it, it tires you, but mm. don't fear, don't be, don't be afraid to move. Mm. Just like you rehearsed hours after hours to get that German Requiem <laughs> in Chicago, you're actually persistent now as well. Uh, with, with the pain treatment. I am. Yeah. Uh, do you have any goal, something that you would like to do in the future that you can't do now because of the pain? Yeah, I would like to be able to go for a run maybe for half an hour. That would be wonderful. To run so much that I start sweating and come home and been exhausted by running and not had to stop and walk home in pain. So that's sort of an active goal, I guess. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. This is a quite hard question for me to ask, but I think it's kind of important for for this whole subject and it you've had pain for such a long time and it's like you said it's affected you from your youth and although you're still young of course there have been like you say 30 years of pain do you feel any bitterness that you lost something in your life because of all this pain well um a little bit i can sometimes i see other families like we went on vacation and played tennis or we went walking in the mountains for a week like those kind of things i i have never been able to offer those kind of things for my family and i'm sort of not bitter about it, but um, it hits me now and then. It's like, have I f not only formed my own life, but their life as well? Like, 
have they become non-active people because of me? Because I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a great uh, influence influencer when it comes to being sporty or whatever. But, but I'm trying to, I'm, I've been trying to push them to to be active. But it's difficult also if they ask, like, do you want to play basketball with me or do you want to go play football? I'm like, ah, oh, no, <laughs> I can't. So, um, I would, I guess, the bitterness is. It's not so heavy, but it's, I wish rather, I wish I would have been able to do all those things for myself and for my family, so. But then I feel kind of relieved actually, because I see a person who actually did a lot of her life and still is, and has the same bad conscience as everyone else uh, <laughs> about not doing things with their family. But I can't really say I'm not doing it because I have back pain. I'm, I'm just lazy and tired. So and, I'm and just lucky to have something to blame. What I usually tell my patients when they are in pain, especially mothers, to be honest, that they feel that they can't take care of their children like they want to do, is that if they not only see you having pain, but see what you can do with the pain and actually see you, see you get better, that could actually help your children become stronger persons in themselves to see that their parents did fight this and it worked out. I understand everyone that feels that they, they are not good parents enough because of pain, but, but we can actually use that too. And, and mm. you did this in a splendid way really i'm impressed and uh, hopefully you will get better in your pain uh, as well uh, <laughs> on the you. same path you al already have taken now going back a little bit to the classical music let's say we have someone here who has listened to this episode was just interested in pain <laughs> and knows nothing <laughs> about classical music they listen to other types of music and they say well this is kind of interesting could classical music be something for me what would you suggest them to listen to get a glimpse of and not get bored or, you know, what, what would you say to these mm -hmm. people who wants to just take a peek into your world? What do you say? They could go on any kind of music app and find uh, Handel Arias, Handel or Handel. It's a Baroque composer. To me, it's very catchy but also soothing sometimes. I'm sure most people have heard some arias by Handel not knowing it's Handel. Those will come up first on the playlist if you Google Handel, but find an aria called Alma Mia. It's my soul in, in um, Italian, Alma Mia, from an opera called Floridante uh, by Handel. It's like a little piece of heaven, starting with, if you want that type of mood. Then, usually I suggest the first piece of the opera of, of Carmen by Bizet, because then you just want to fly around in the house, uh, jumping up and down. So it depends on what mood you're looking for. But in, in the, the wide, wide sea of classical music, I can see that it's like difficult to find anything special. But so I have three. I have the Handel aria, Alma Mia. I have the overture to the opera Carmen. It's like the, the first piece of, of the opera. They don't sing, it's just orchestra. And then the third piece is by a composer 
corn gold, so with a K, uh, corn gold, and it's Marietta's lead or Marietta's song by Corn Gold, which mm. is like the most beautiful aria ever written. I, I promised the listener that Elin and I will make a very short playlist and we will put it on my website, karstenalbeck.com, so you can get a start with uh, some tunes. Wouldn't that be great? Right? Super. Let's do that. So before we uh, end this great episode, is there anything that I missed that I should have asked you that uh, I didn't talk about or... Um... It's complete. I think we covered it all. <laughs> did <Good>. we? <laughs> I think we did. It has been such a pleasure to uh, talk to you. You've opened up a world of both pain and music. You have given a lot of uh, very good pieces of advice, both uh, dealing with pain, but actually a lot about how to start with classical music, which can be soothing for pain as well. I wish you the best of luck in the future. I actually don't know if you can say good luck uh, or is it break a leg for a singer as well, but you said you, you're not that superstitious. <laughs> you can say good luck. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pure pleasure to to talk about this. Thank you. For everyone out there, be well and prosper.